Good evening, friends. This is Franz Weinschenk, your host on Valley Writers Read, welcoming you to tonight's show. Friends, all the writers you hear on this program are Valley products. Tonight, a story by Fresno author Diane Lofstrom Miniel entitled Mystery Spot. It's a story about a pretty lonely nine-year-old girl sent off with a busload of other youngsters to spend the day at Knott's Berry Farm. And here's the author herself to read her story to us. Ladies and gentlemen, Diane Lofstrom Miniel reading Mystery Spot. Mystery Spot. One morning when I was nine, my mom and I argued about sending me on a day trip to Knott's Berry Farm. During the summers, while she worked as a seamstress for the studios in and around Los Angeles, I kept busy cycling through vacation Bible school, summer school, and YMCA day camp until the regular school started up again in the fall. The Knott's trip was a special activity. After summer school ended and before the regular weekly YMCA camp program started. In the town that birthed the adventures of Ozzie and Harriet and Father Knows Best, day camp functioned as a babysitter for the child of working or divorced parents, a mechanism to keep a child out of trouble and under adult supervision. I'm sure I begged Mom to stay at home because none of my friends agreed to go with me. An obedient child, I did not expend much effort to win an argument. So, Mom won. Our tiff made us miss the city bus. Mom and I arrived at the Hollywood YMCA as the camp bus stood in the parking lot, its engines running, ready to leave. All the other children were seated on the bus. The counselor told me to find a seat as my mother took care of the fare. I remember walking down the aisle. For a camp bus, it was quiet. All of us children packed off to find adventure with strangers. As I made my way down the aisle, I noticed the girls sat on one side and the boys sat on the other. I searched for a vacant seat on the girl's side, my heart racing when I realized there wasn't one. The only empty seat was on the boy's side, next to a boy who sat on it dead center. His face was turned away from me, looking out the window, and then he turned to look at me. His eyes were light blue, and his cheeks dimpled. He was Kurt Russell Pretty, the kind of boy who would grow up to be the captain of the football team and make his life with a gorgeous blonde. Kurt's were usually mean to chubby, brown-haired girls like me. They had to be to avoid ridicule from their friends. The camp counselor yelled to me from the front of the bus, Take that seat! And the boy looked up at the camp counselor with the expression, You've got to be kidding. Scoot over, the counselor continued, or do you want to spend the entire day camped out in the parking lot? The boy moved over and focused his eyes on the window. 
I sat down and looked over his head to mouth goodbye to my mom. To my mortification, she waved and blew me kisses. A few children on the bus snickered, and some boys made smooching sounds, but Kurt did not. He continued to look out the window, his face so close to the glass, his breath beaded on the windows. I settled back into the seat as the bus drove down Hollywood Boulevard and over to the freeway on-ramp, the start of the hour or so ride to a fun-filled day at Knott's. I felt uncomfortable sitting next to Kurt. By the age of nine, I perceived elementary social structure. My instincts told me he was a popular boy and just as uncomfortable sitting next to me as I was sitting next to him. Ironically, I worried about his comfort rather than mine. I had made the trip to the neighboring amusement parks on other camp buses. On those other days, a camp counselor sat in the back of the bus and played his guitar. We children sang along with him songs like the Beatles, We all live in a yellow submarine, Peter, Paul, and Mary's Puff the Magic Dragon, and the standard camp classic, 99 bottles of Coke on the wall, 99 bottles of Coke. We'd sing a few songs, repeat a chorus ad nauseum, and before we knew it, we'd be at our destination. But the camp counselors that day didn't have a guitar and didn't lead us in any songs a cappella. The college-aged boy and girl sat at the front of the bus talking to each other while we children were quiet. Because my mom and I moved a lot, and I was perpetually the new kid at school, I had learned the art of small talk. The daunting thought of a long, silent drive from Hollywood to Buena Park forced me to take action. First time at Knottsbury Farm? I asked. Kurt turned to stare at me, not concealing his surprise that I was talking to him. I continued. I've been there, uh, with my dad and mom once. You can pan for gold there. I let the silence rest between us, realizing that such a conversation with an unknown, good-looking boy could be tricky. I had to strategically time the rhythm of my questions and his silence. I've been a few times, he said, with my friends. Did you like it? I knew how to ask the questions that would make him talk about himself. It was okay, he said. Actually, there was one ride that was really fun. Kurt described his last adventure at Knott's, and I listened, posing questions meant to keep him talking. Eventually, I found out where he was from and what grade he was in. But if he had not answered me or avoided eye contact... I would have taken the hint and contented myself with being quiet, too. But Kurt answered my questions and even asked a few of his own. The bus pulled into Knott'sbury Farm, the friendliest place in the West. The counselors gave us instructions to form two lines as we got off the bus, a girl's line and a boy's line. I wasn't too sure how the park visit would work. All the other camp trips I'd been on we stayed in groups with our camp counselors. I was a little forlorn when the counselors announced, The person you sat next to on the bus is your park buddy. A lot of children cheered. On previous day trips, I had masked my loneliness by staying close to the camp counselors, but that evidently was not an option. And I didn't have enough time to think about Kurt as my park buddy 
before he walked over to me at the end of the girls' line to explain he was going to go with two other boys. He surprised me, but with kindness, pointing out the boys he was joining and the boys looking at him talking to me. As the new girl, the fat girl, the girl of divorced parents, I had grown accustomed to derogatory comments or embarrassing accusations. That Kurt took the time to explain a change in plans rather than ignore me was a new experience. That the boys didn't make fun of Kurt speaking to me was also unusual. I rationalized how awful exploring the park with Kurt would have been, not that we might not have had fun, but his good looks would have served only to magnify my own imperfections, and I would have worried about ruining his day. My pre adolescent perception was that Kurt's never had to work at making friends. As he turned and walked away, I realized another of my options for a park buddy was walking away too. The two camp counselors had been looking at me and talking together at the front of the lines. I guess they were deciding what to do with me. The female counselor started handing out a $5 bill to each child, from which we were to buy lunch and purchase ride tickets. As she handed a bill to me, she said, Put that away now. I'd never had an entire $5 to spend all by myself. I tucked it into a pocket. I focused on two girls I stood behind a taller girl with brown hair like mine, and a smaller girl who was blonde. I was a head taller than the tall girl. After the counselor handed us our money, the tall girl looked at me and said, Who are you going with? If she sounded interested, I understood it was because she didn't want me tagging along with them. I anticipated her next line to have been something like, Stand somewhere else then so they don't make you go with us. But the male counselor at the front of the lines must have heard her question as he strode toward me and said, You are to go with these two girls, and pointed to them. That's all right with you two now, isn't it? His tone left no room for disagreement. They both whimpered out loud to him, but one look by an adult silenced most children back then. When I looked at the girls' faces, they quickly turned away from me. The taller girl whispering into the ear of the smaller girl, and the smaller girl nodding her head. Even as a child, I recognized the counselor's flawed decision. It was easier for him to attach me to two other children than to accept the responsibility of caring for me himself. Stunned over the counselor forcing me on the two girls, I became speechless. At that young age, college students were adults in my view, and adults were to be obeyed. I didn't have the thought to challenge the counselor's decision by saying things like, No way, I'm not going with those two. Why can't I go with you? Isn't that what you're paid for? But that type of questioning required a fast forward 15 years for Bart Simpson like dialogue. In those days, not even Dennis the Menace could be so openly insubordinate. After all, I was a child who sympathized with Casper the Friendly Ghost. Even though my appearance was frightening, my game plan was to win them over by being super friendly. As the group walked toward the park entrance, the girls separated themselves from me, walking well ahead. Accustomed to having to make the best of bad situations, I caught up to the girls and tried my chatty charm on them. So, where are you from? The worst case was the disappearance of my questions into the air. As if they were flames on a candle snuffed out before any light could cast its glow, 
before the wick could even smolder. The girls looked at each other, but said nothing, and rolled their eyes. They kept moving with the group toward the park entrance. I continued to gush. I'm from Santa Monica Elementary. I'm going into the fifth grade. What grade are you going into? I looked from one girl to the other. The smaller girl asked the taller, What grade are you going into? Sixth, she said, which was immediately echoed by the smaller girl. Me too. But they looked younger than me. I thought they were lying. Where do you go to school? I asked, still trying to keep the conversation going. The counselor stopped at the gate entrance, pointed to the bench at the end of the walkway, and gave us instructions to meet them there at 4 p.m. Once through the gate, the three of us took off to explore the park. We each had a map, and I started to make suggestions as to where we could go. We could plan for gold. I did that once with my mom and dad. Afterward, they give you a small necklace with the gold dust you find. Nah, said the taller girl. That sounds boring. Look, I said, pointing to a picture on the map. They have a burrow ride. We could all go, nah, we don't like smelly old donkeys. I looked at the map. Oh, we could, you know, the taller girl said. You don't have to stay with us if you don't want to. I didn't know how to answer her. I didn't want to stay with them if they didn't want me. But they were my only option for fast friendship. My real fear was to be alone for the day. Well, where do you want to go? I'll go with you. Hmm, just around, the taller girl said and kept walking. So I fell behind them and became silent, listening to them talk. Every once in a while, the taller girl turned to me and repeated, You know, you don't have to stay with us if you don't want to. I know where we can go, the smaller girl said. I had followed them as they circled the park, not suggesting anything themselves and saying no to everything I suggested. We were in the main gate store where we had eyed cowboy hats and boots, fake spurs, lasso ropes, bonnets and miniature covered wagons. Where? We can go to the wagon camp. They agreed, and we walked and skipped and ran, children seizing every opportunity to play, finding canvas-covered replicas of the old-fashioned wagons, and as we entered the circle, we transformed into pioneer children, traveling westward with the wagon train along the Oregon and Santa Fe trails. Or perhaps only I transformed. We'll just wait for the show said one of the girls, and they both ran well ahead of me to sit near the center in one of the vacant wagons. The circle of wagons begged for childhood imaginations, like playing horses with my friends after school by galloping within the apartment's gated yard, or playing Gilligan's Island, where we all fight over who got to be Gilligan. One of my favorite movies was Doris Day's Calamity Jane the Hollywood version of the fast-shooting, pant-wearing, legendary cowgirl who found love with Well Bill Hickok, at least in that version. It was an ugly duckling, cleaned-up pretty kind of story. I loved ugly duckling stories because they gave me hope one day I'd clean up pretty too. The stagecoach went by, and it's not a stretch to remember I played along with my environment by becoming the irascible Jane in cowgirl gear, clomping in boots among the wagons, my six-shooter in my hip pocket, and Wild Bill just around the corner. I was a child, after all. Show times were posted. The next shootout started in an hour. As I walked toward the wagon, 
I saw the girls sitting next to each other, happily agreeing on something. The realization that the girls were going to abandon me slapped me in the face, something like what Calamity Jane would do to Wild Bill. But somehow the roles had been swapped, as I was the one feeling the sting on my cheek. Through practice, I'd learned that most children liked me if I just had time to be a friend, to make them into a friend. Then they saw past exterior impressions, but time was not on my side on a one day adventure. Intuiting the girls were setting me up to walk away, my pace slowed. I stopped, looked down at my map, over at the show times, around at the various other wagons, but dragging my feet could not prevent them from leaving me. I contemplated my options. What could I say? Beg them not to leave me? Or confront them like a true calamity Jane, lesser Western vernacular, by saying something like, I know you girls are ditching me here. Well, best on with it. You're no friend of mine. But I didn't have a scriptwriter to write my lines, and I admit I wasn't sarcastically quick witted. I wondered what my friend Robin might have said if she had come for the day. She was one of my friends who said no to my day trip invitation because she could stay at home. If Robin had gone, she would have yelled at them, If you don't want me to go with you, then that's your problem. Actually, when she realized she was being dumped, she would have turned her back on them and been the one to stomp off and leave them. Robin made a better calamity Jane than me. I walked up to the girls, realizing I was going to make it easy for them to leave me. They didn't catch on, laughing, giggling, whispering in each other's ears, and avoiding eye contact. Maybe like me, they knew I knew. But more than likely, they had duped themselves into believing that their premeditated cruelty was not transparent. I said nothing. The taller girl stood up and offered me her seat. They mocked politeness. Why don't you sit for a while? She winked at her friend. Yeah, sit for a while. Yeah, we're just going to go over there for a bit. She pointed off in the distance. Now, don't go nowhere. We'll be right back for the show. She giggled at the shorter girl, who giggled along with her like two hyenas before a kill. I sat in the wagon and watched them walk away. I looked at the families in the surrounding wagons. A few parents looked over park maps, while children ran around woo wooing like Indians and shooting each other with finger triggers and make believe arrows. I waited a bit to confirm that the girls had no intention of circling back for me before I returned to look at the map. I felt a terrible, heart crushing weight on my chest. I felt tears coming to my eyes, blurring the images in front of me. My worst fear had materialized. I had been left alone. I cried a bit, ready to give in to sobs, but I knew more tears only made for puffy red eyes and a stuffy nose. And what if I attracted attention? Some stranger might ask, Little girl, why are you crying? What good would that do? Where would I spend the day then? I might wind up sitting in some office waiting the endless hours for it to be time to ride the bus home. What if they called my mom at work and asked her to come take me home? She'd have to leave work. She'd have to catch a bus or call dad and make him leave work. Or even worse, what if no one noticed me crying and said nothing? I stopped my blubbering. I had been alone before. I was a child of divorced parents. 
living with a working mother. What could really be that bad about being alone in an amusement park? I found the location of the old ghost town on the map and traded my Calamity Jane boots for Sacagawea's moccasins, my favorite Indian girl, to explore the park as if it were the Louisiana Territory, along with Lewis and Clark. I pretended to scout on my own for the day. I came to the area where parents and children panned for gold and remembered when my dad had brought me to the park. Children and adults were lined up on one side of a water chute, standing bent over a trough with plates filled with mud and sand. The goal was to allow the water to wash away the earth and leave behind the wittier gold dust. I needed to be moving rather than standing in one spot, and the activity took a ticket, and I hadn't broken the five dollars yet. The girls were right. Panning for gold was boring. I continued my solitary climb up Boot Hill to the haunted shack and looked at the pictures posted on a kiosk. It was one of the world's few mystery spots, one of the places in the world where gravity acted differently. The pictures posted outside the shack showed one person sitting in an old chair, and the people around the chair looked as if they were standing on the wall at obtuse angles to the floor. In a mystery spot, balls rolled uphill, and a shorter person facing a taller person standing on a level plank appeared taller or the same height when their positions were reversed. The kiosk information even claimed that time flowed slower and thus affected objects moving through it. As a child, time moved slowly enough. Because my mother sewed the sequenced and feathered gowns of movie stars, and my father was the practical mechanic that made magic happen for Disney illusionists, I cannot recall a time I didn't know that special effects were contrived. The daughter of a mechanical magician, my father often confided that stuntmen crushed through saloon glass made of clear sugar. Film crews exploded water towers and reversed the film to create the parting of the Red Sea, and then artists animated the water standing as a wall. As a child growing up in Hollywood, I understood the world's appearance was a facade. Movie towns were manufactured sets, exteriors only propped up from behind, created to mask reality. While I enjoyed losing myself in a good fantasy, I still saw the curtain hiding the real wizard before Dorothy did. Mickey Mouse and the Big Bad Wolf were cartoons, make-believe characters that required real people countless hours to draw each movement to make them appear real. And I knew that Hollywood created people, too. Movie stars like Marilyn Monroe, Frank Sinatra, and Rock Hudson with beautiful exteriors that hid tragic lives. Special effects, myths, the magic of Hollywood, created and then explained away by both my parents in separate apartments at different times. Standing at the kiosk, looking at all the pictures, seeing it was free, that it didn't require a ticket, and without another game partner, surely then the mystery spot was a secret needing solving. So I mentally teamed up with the level-headed Nancy Drew, my favorite blonde detective, who was slim and smart and always shopping for different colored shoes, in a joint adventure to solve the secret of the mystery spot. The entrance of the haunted shack appeared normal, with rustic furniture economically spaced. In each room, there were a few things to read, as Walter Knott, the owner of the theme park, 
was a historian of sorts, preserving the early pioneer days of his own parents by actually tearing down the ghost town of Calico and reassembling it on his farm. The entire town reconstructed as an amusement for his guests to pass time in while they waited in line for one of his wife's famous fried chicken dinners. But I can't recall much of the posted history. The ground under my feet started to tilt ever so slightly, more and more so with each room, until the grade became so severe it was difficult to stand without holding on to something. The architecture in each room also shifted, until I walked to the spot where I found myself standing on the side of the wall, rather than on the floor, next to the chair pictured on the kiosk. I stood at that obtuse angle to the floor, the monochromatic color and steep slant, the starkness of the furnishings, and the manipulated slats of the shack walls didn't leave my eyes with a reliable horizontal reference. The world around me looked straight, and my presence in it skewed. I stepped to the side to watch a family walking behind me. The children fought over who would sit in the chair. They positioned themselves just like the kiosk picture. The mother sat in the chair, and the husband and children stood at odd angles around her, all the while bickering about something. And then they spotted me in the corner and asked me to take their picture. The secret of the mystery spot was no more than a well-engineered optical illusion. I envisioned yellow bulldozers creating the graduated hill in which the shack had been constructed. If I had been able to construct my world for that day, if Robin had left her home to spend her day with me, we would have played the mystery spot game together by taking a few of our own pictures— she would have sat in the chair with me standing on the wall next to her. She would have asked the family to take our pictures, too. But the reality was that I had been sent to Knott's Berry Farm to play the game alone. In my own reality, I needed to adapt my own understanding of the mystery spot, a place where it was acceptable for me to feel at odds with the off-kilter world around me. It was a stationary exercise, waiting in line all alone at an amusement park. I had left behind the mystery spot, no longer requiring my imaginary friends, Calamity Jane or Sacagawea or Nancy. I had made the trek alone across the barren farmland to the Calico Mine Ride. I was just me. I broke the $5 bill to purchase a ticket and pocketed the change. Parents in front or behind me yelled commands to their children, "'Get off the rail! This isn't a jungle, Jim!' Stop hitting your sister. While children questioned, Are we there yet? Or made suggestions as to what they wanted to do next. I was engaged in my own inner conversation. Should I stay in line? Do I really want to go on this ride? This is taking too long. Should I leave? Where do I go then? The line's not moving. Should I ride the burrows next? My answer was to conclude that an amusement park is not that amusing for an abandoned child. Not as if I was one of those children who could not entertain themselves when left alone. I was very good at that. At home I painted by number, read books, played dolls, and watched television. And in so doing, I seldom felt alone. But the world's collective enjoyment of Knott's Berry Farm only served to emphasize my isolation, my oddity, as if I were superglued on an invisible wall and from my obtuse angle of voyeur to the events going on around me. As a child, no lonelier place existed than in that crowd at Knott's Berry Farm. 
The line did move, and I stood before the gate to the miner's car. The gate attendant asked me how many. One, I said. One, he questioned. One, I repeated, and held up my index finger. He motioned me into a car with another family, a mother and father with two children. They looked through me, and I looked over them. They were a version of reality I did not possess. A mother and father still together on vacation, enjoying the park. And because I didn't want to answer any hard questions such as "Where are your parents? Who are you with?" I behaved as if it was normal for me to be riding the calico mine ride alone as a child. After the family gave me an initial look or two, they too acted as if I wasn't even there. The rickety miner's car started to move along the track into the cavern. Clickety clack, clickety clack, faster and faster until the sound was a steady click, 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 click until we were gliding into the mountain. Its coolness a sharp contrast to the warm Southern California summer. The deeper down the car went, the darker toward the center of the earth. The more I could eclipse the family in front of me to dwell on the wind blowing in my face. My hair flying behind me, with my eyes closed, I became invisible in that dark world, sailing over the ground, over the clacking rails. A little girl flying in a dark world, free to soar unseen in a miner's car, gliding over the earth below. Being alone at Nosbury Farm for the day was bad, but not as bad as I had imagined. The main gate store was filled with colorful toys that begged me to buy them. After the calico mine ride, I had made my own way back to the store to shop for something with the rest of the change from my five-dollar bill. My choices were innumerable, but I quickly had my favorites: a traditional stuffed doll with a porcelain face, common for a pioneer child, a cowgirl's hat, an Indian headdress, or a snow globe with the haunted shack. Then there was an ugly green frog, so ugly he was cute. He was made from slick, glossy, jello-like rubber filled with chartreuse glitter, so that when I picked him up by his elastic band, he bounced and sparkled. The green frog smiled. An older brother to Kermit the Frog, for no logical reason other than I liked him, I purchased the jiggling green Kermit on his elastic leash. Not enough money in my pocket to ride or eat, I made my way back to the bench. I sat on it dead center, with no one in sight. Looking at my frog, I touched its slick rubber surface and let it bounce up and down, the glitter sparkling in the sun, momentarily freed from the effect of gravity by my pull on his rope. I knew there was a long time to wait before the bus left for home. I'd waited many times on bus benches with my mom for more than an hour. We'd play twenty questions to make the time pass quickly. Mom would guess whether I was a vegetable, mineral, or animal. I was always an animal, and then mostly a horse or a zebra or an elephant. The hours passed quickly if we played, and this time I would have been a frog, a green glittering frog. While the frog bounced, I thought of the haunted shack and how everything felt crooked. But look straight. How everyone's reaction implied I was the one off kilter. But then they too stood in an engineered spot. The world had spent a lot of time manufacturing a reality that didn't exist for lonely children like me, parents happily married, children and adults movie star beautiful, cantankerous Janes falling in love with legends, 
Indians living free, and places where the rules of gravity did not apply. But I knew how to look behind the illusions. I had survived my worst fear of the day, being alone at knots. I began to see that a mystery spot was a matter of engineering and belief. From my own spot on that bench, I started to feel centered, even with the world around me askew. Lost in my own imaginations, a boy walked up to me. Is this the bench where we wait to go back to the YMCA in Hollywood? He was alone, too. Yeah, I said. He sat down next to me. He was a Jerry Mathers type of boy with dark hair and slightly pudgy. You get ditched, too? His voice was high-pitched and squeaky. Kind of, I said. I had been left behind to engineer my own destiny. So how much longer do we got to wait, he said. There was a clock hanging above us which read ten of two. More than two hours. I recognized Jerry as my opportunity to make a day camp companion. He was a friend I would tell my mom about to convince her that I'd had a fun-filled day. Know how to play twenty questions, I asked him. Yeah, he said. I bounced my frog, my sparkling, slick kermit, who sailed up and then down, magically freed from the pull of the earth mid-jumps and falls by the twist of my wrist. A dragon lives forever But not so little boys Painted wings and giant's rings Make way for other toys One gray night it happened Jackie Paper came no more And Puff, that mighty dragon He ceased his fearless roar Oh, Puff, the magic dragon Lived by the sea And frolicked in the autumn mist In a land called That was Diane Lofstrom Miniel reading Mystery Spot. And what we heard gives us some insight into this rather shy, sensitive nine-year-old who was probably a little taller and maybe a little heavier than the other girls on that bus, but whom the kids pretty much ignored and abandoned. She seems to be one of many, many youngsters nowadays who come from single, working mom families, homes where moms have to bring home the bacon and hardly have time to parent their kids, hardly have time to take them to places because they have so many other responsibilities, yet they still want their kids to be busy and happy and accepted by their peers in school and on the block. Obviously, that didn't quite work out so well in this case, So Diane's story leaves us wondering, along with John Lennon of the Beatles, all the lonely people, where do they all come from? All the lonely people, where do they all belong? Thanks, Diane Lofstrom-Miniel, for such an insightful story. Friends, Diane Lofstrom-Miniel grew up mostly in Hollywood, but has been living in Fresno since 1993. 
She read at the 2005 Rogue Festival and also at the 2006 Mellis Conference in Fresno. And a story of hers is going to be published in Fresno State's official literary journal, the San Joaquin Review. We're grateful for your story tonight, Diane, and hope you have another one for us for next year. And so we come to the end of another edition of Valley Writers Read. Thank you for listening. Next week, we'll be featuring a perennial favorite of ours, David Borofka. Be sure to mark your calendar for that and join us next Wednesday. If you'd like to listen to tonight's story or any of the other programs in this series, just go online to kvpr.org and click on Archived Audio. Meanwhile, this is your host, Franz Weinschenk, wishing you and yours a great life story until we meet again. Good night. Valley Writers Read is a weekly series produced by Don Weaver and Franz Weinschenk for Valley Public Radio. Please join us again next Wednesday at the same time for another edition of Valley Writers Read. <laughs>